Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before Been raking in billions and itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say code war, we say code pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say code war, we say code pink Code pink for freedom Code pink for peace Emma's Revolution, and this is Carly Town with the Divest from the War Machine campaign at Code Pink, and you're listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us for today's show. Um, if this is your first time joining us, Code Pink is a women's-led anti-war group that is organizing across the country to put an end to U.S.-funded militarism around the world. We're here to challenge imperialism, capitalism, and war with the goal of creating a world of justice, peace, and equality. Achieving justice requires that each and every one of us joins together in solidarity and demands a better world. It requires us to understand that the struggle against U.S. imperialism is also a struggle against police brutality and anti-immigrant animus. The anti-war movement is also a struggle for peace. And we can't have peace if we don't advocate for workers' rights, women's rights, environmental justice, and racial justice. If you're listening to the show, you've already taken the first step in being part of a movement for all of these struggles, and we welcome you. Before we get into today's show, let's talk about some important news that's happened over the past week. Over the weekend, Code Pink joined the, and participated in the National Day of Action to Stop Asian Violence and China Bashing. Code Pink, the Answer Coalition, Pivot to Peace, the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association, the Asian Pacific Islander American Public Affairs, or AP, APA, Chow Collective, Labor Against Racism and War, and more, came together with events around the country to stand in solidarity with the Asian and Asian American community in the midst of the horrific, racist, and misogynistic massacre that took place in Atlanta on March 16th. Six Asian women were among their eight shot dead at point blank range. The alarming rise in anti-Asian violence over the past year correlates to an increasingly hostile US foreign policy towards China. The opportunistic scapegoating of China during the onset of COVID-19 pandemic, coupled with the intensity by which China has been deemed the enemy and adversary of the United States, has driven a widespread xenophobic sentiment nationally. The Asian American community suffers the brunt of this hatred, which is fomented as a weapon of war. To date, there have been 3,800 self-reported hate crimes against Asian Americans. The mainstream media's failure to label the Atlanta shooting as racially motivated crime demonstrates the gross disregard and injustice that our communities are facing. Racism is a sick symptom of a system that profits from war and violence. So it's imperative that we make the connection between the increasing incidence of hate crimes against Asian Americans and Asians in the United States and the racist xenophobic scapegoating of China that leaders in our country have been spreading to justify an increasingly militaristic posturing towards China. In the same breath that they condemn hate crimes against Asians and Asian Americans in our country, the Biden administration is also supporting the Pentagon's new Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which includes increasing the US military's encirclement of China. We're also here to say that instigating a war on China or any nation is never the answer. 
If we ever hope to address actual threats to our security, including the ongoing climate disaster and worldwide vaccine distribution, we need to cooperate with China and clearly state that China is not our enemy. We need Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to stop stoking a global conflict with China that feeds the Cold War abroad and anti-Asian attacks at home. You can go to codepink.org slash Blinken to tell Secretary Blinken to stop anti-Asian hate abroad and at home. Again, you can go to codepink.org slash Blinken to take action. In other news, CodePink joined over 25 organizations from across the ideological spectrum to send a letter to key congressional committees identifying suggested cuts to the fiscal year 2022 but Pentagon budget that would yield a savings of about $80 billion. The coalition represents a diversity of political views because reducing the Pentagon budget is not a partisan issue in the traditional sense. A poll conducted by Data for Progress found that reducing wasteful Pentagon spending and redirecting our tax dollars into social programs has broad public support. This was reflected in the transpartisan letter that we sent along with 25 other organizations to key congressional committees that identifies, again, $80 billion in savings. We're also calling on President Joe Biden to defund the Pentagon and invest in our local communities. So you can go to codepink.org slash Biden Pentagon budget to sign on and tell him we need to reduce the Pentagon budget and invest in our communities. Now for today's show. First, we'll hear for a, from a new addition to the Code Pink team, uh, Moses Hernandez McGavin, about their new role as an organizer with the Divest from the War Machine campaign. Then we'll hear from John, Peter, and Linda, all activists in Rhode Island who are working on a historic bill in the Rhode Island State House to divest Rhode Island from the war machine. So without further ado, let's get right into these exciting interviews. Today I'm joined by Moses Hernandez-McGavin, a new member of the Code Pink team who will be organizing on the Divest from the War Machine campaign here at Code Pink. Um, the Divest from the War Machine campaign works to divest our cities, schools, and politicians from the war machine. So welcome, Moses. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Carly. Excited to have you here. Um, and today, you know, you're a new member of the team. You're going to be working as an organizer on our Divest from the War Machine campaign. I just wanted to um, allow people to a, a chance to kind of get to know you a little bit more um, because I think that you have some really excellent experience and your background is so great. Um, so first, you know, let's get into it. Can you tell us um, a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so um, I am originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was born in Milwaukee, but we moved about 30 minutes west when I was seven years old. Um, and so I'm currently home right now, of course, wrapping up my degree. Um, I'm, a, I'm a senior right now at NYU. Um, I go to Tisch School of the Arts and I'm majoring right now in dramatic writing. So I'm wrapping up right now my uh, playwriting thesis, which is um, actually a piece about like the Poor People's Campaign. Um, I interviewed like a bunch of people from like the anti-poverty movement and um, and uh, it was just like um, a really powerful experience and it's been really great so far. And kind of outside of that and outside of school, um, I am a student with the Popular Education Project and then a member of the University of the Poor. And then next year, I'll go down to Georgia to pursue my MDiv at um, Emory University. Um, so yeah. Wow, that's that's really excellent. I didn't know that about, um, you know, what you're currently working on. Um, I think 
people would be interested to hear more about, um, you know, your final project for school. Um, could you, I mean, you talk a lot about um, the Poor People's Campaign. We also talked about the University of the Poor. So, you know, could you tell me more about your work with the Poor People's Campaign? Um, like, why is this work important to you? And how did you kind of first get started working with the Poor People's Campaign? Yeah, um, so I think, you know, it's really interesting because it feels like it's been longer, but it's only been about a year. Um, I um, About a year ago, I was a student fellow with the Poor People's Campaign. And, you know, that experience and the weekend that we spend in Howard as a fellowship um, really, really changed my life. And I think um, a big part of it was kind of the context in which it was in, which is, you know, when I first moved to New York to go to school when I was 18 years old, like, I all I wanted to do was like, I wanted to write for SNL and like be a playwright and work in theater and stuff like that. And um, that was kind of like, my dream, I really had like no ideas or aspirations of like political organizing or anything. Um, and so as soon as I moved to New York, I started to try and get like my foot in the door in all of these places, um, working volunteering, interning, like doing anything I could do just to get in a theater or anything like that. And what I started noticing pretty much like right off the bat was I was confronted and exposed really upfront to some pretty harsh economic inequalities in the field. And uh, it was really hard for me. Um, it was just, it really challenged me in a lot of ways. And I was asking a lot of questions about like why some people were making so much money and uh, why so many people were struggling, but they would be working at the same company. And, you know, I had a lot of these questions and, you know, I realize now that that's not really, um, uh, that's not exclusive to the arts field by any means, but that was my experience that I was having it in. And so my sophomore year, I decided that I was going to start like volunteering and doing a lot of service. So I did a lot of service with this really big um, kind of, uh, company, I guess, organization is a better word. It's this big organization in New York. And so I started doing a lot of service work with them, um, but I was also starting to ask questions that, while it was good that of course they were meeting people's immediate needs. I was also asking a question a step further, which is, um, is there anything we can do to alleviate the need for um, service projects? Like, you know, what is the root cause of needing so many service projects? And what is the root cause of that? And People did not like when I asked that question, you know, just as people did not like when I was asking questions in the arts field. And, you know, I was kind of met with kind of this toxic thought of both that I think is really prevalent in the United States, which is when I asked those questions um, in the entertainment field, you know, it was all like, these myths about how uh, if you don't want to work for jobs, if you don't want to do the hustle, if you don't want to do that, then you must not actually like art that much and you must not actually be a very hard worker. Um, if you don't want to work for exposure, then you're actually not cut out to be an artist. And when I started raising these questions in a service context, it was of course like, well, these things are always going to be here, so there's nothing you can do. Um, so you should just stop being like sad about it, basically. Um, and that's paraphrasing, but that was kind of like, you know, it was like basically just like, you know, throwing our hands in the air, like there's nothing we can do. Um, you know, poverty will always exist. It's inevitable. You know, um, that was what I was confronted with. And so by the time I was a junior in college, um, I 
was just really struggling. I felt like uh, no one was out there really taking anything like a step further and no one was out there wanting to really analyze the root causes of these things in our society. And um, there wasn't really this big movement. And uh, at the same time, I started reading the autobiography of Reverend Dr. King and was really changed politically and spiritually. And um, in particular, his his later life and his work with the 1968 Poor People's Campaign was really important for me. And uh, on the first day of a new job, I was listening to Democracy Now! and Reverend Barber was actually on it. And um, he was talking about the new Poor People's Campaign. And so I signed up for the email list. And then like a week later, I got an email that it was like the last day to sign up for like um, kind of a fellowship. And so I like emailed the teacher and I was like, how much do you like me? Can you write me like a letter of rec today for this thing? And um, I got the fellowship and I was, you know, really happy and I didn't really know what to expect. And when I got there, um, I was exposed for the first time in my life to people who were doing an analysis of the root issue of these things and people who were really asking big questions of why things were the way that they were. But then in addition to that is that this isn't how it has to be. Um, this isn't just because it's been this way forever that it has to continue being like that. And so a week after uh, the fellowship, um, I was actually sent home from Wisconsin. It was the week before kind of everything shut down. And so I started organizing with local organizers in Wisconsin and really was just transformed where we were kind of in the process of rebuilding the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign. And there were a lot of mistakes and there were a lot of like victories and there were like, it was so much like joy and so much hard work. And um, I just really look back at like the past few months with such fondness and really like, I do feel like as someone who never thought I would do political organizing, it's in a way like I feel like I found like what I've been meant to do all these years. So it really does hold a very special place in my heart. Oh, I didn't know that. And that's, that's so, you know, first of all, you know, your journey kind of, I think makes a lot of sense to, I think a lot of people, right, who have, um, or are in active spaces or are, are, are brought into them um, based on their own life experiences. And um, agreed, I had, I have a very, I had a similar um, kind of experience, like, in college, looking around, um, seeing the, the sort of, um, inequalities that were talked about versus weren't talked about, um, right? And and I think what you said about um, questioning and trying to actually get at the root causes of why, for example, we need charity to provide um, food or shelter for people is so important. And um, that that's really important. And I also think that, you know, the Poor People's Campaign, like you mentioned, right? I mean, the three sort of main um, areas of focus, um, uh, dismantling systemic racism, um, poverty and inequality, and U.S. militarism, bringing those three together, which like you mentioned, right, is um, Dr. Martin Luther King's original um, analysis as well, um, is, is very important and something that, of course, could pink as part of um, the Poor People's Campaign, and part of the, the Poor People's Moral Budget is, is divesting $350 billion from the Pentagon budget to actually start paying for some of these social social needs and social goods. Um, it's interesting when you talked about your story about that, um, people getting upset or angry or, or, you know, they just maybe don't, it's, there's a disconnect between 
doing charity and asking what are the root causes, I feel like we, we come up against that as well when we're talking about um, our defund the Pentagon campaign, right? It's like, uh, I think a lot of people can recognize some of the horrors uh, that U.S. foreign policy or U.S. imperialism enacts around the world, but then you're like, okay, well, we actually have a solution to that, right? And part of that is defunding the Pentagon and, and people, don't, people don't like that, particularly the companies, right, that are gonna profit. Um, from a, a bloated Pentagon budget. So that's really important. Um, so, you know, I think that's really great to hear about the Poor People's Campaign, but I'm also wondering, you know, how do you think the work of the Poor People's Campaign might connect to the work of Good Pink? I know I talked a little bit about it, but um, what, what kind of drew you to that connection? Yeah, I think for a long time, when I was like kind of developing my own political understanding, um, I looked at like, I thought for a long time that domestic policy and kind of like foreign policy were very different and like not like super related and stuff like that. And I think that's a pretty common, like people kind of tend to silo them. Um, but uh, I think the work that I have done with like the Poor People's Campaign and um, working at like, I mean, it's been a week, but like, you know, my week at Copink is like really helped solidify kind of like how these things are actually very interconnected. And I think like one of the biggest things is kind of just looking at like kind of where our priorities are as a nation, right? We have a Pentagon budget of like over $700 billion. And yet here in like the United States, like we have 140 million poor or low income people. And that number probably needs to be updated because of the current um, pandemic. And, you know, in the United States, we can build like a prefab home in 45 minutes. And at the same time, it's estimated that like, 250,000 people die from poverty every year and you know 700 people freeze to death outside every year from homelessness. And so really if you start to look at like where our priorities are at, as kind of a country, um, you start to see kind of how um, domestic policy and foreign policy actually really do go hand in hand. Um, and I think another big thing about both Code Pink and about the Poor People's Campaign is that, like, I think they both play a really big role in shifting the consciousness of some ideas that we are brought up with kind of in the United States. And I think, like, for the Poor People's Campaign, right, some of the ideas that we're brought up with is that we don't really know, like, who is poor and why they are poor, right? Our ideas about poverty are about that people are poor because they're lazy or because they... Um, don't work hard enough, or they're just down in their luck, they have to work harder and something will come around, when really that's not why people, right, are, that's not why people are poor, right? And I think with Code Pink, like, it's also kind of like, we really have to start questioning kind of like, some of the things we're taught and grown up with thinking like it was right that the United States did this or that like uh, the US was in the right with this, you know, and kind of like it really starts to make us question and really start to shift our consciousness about like who our country actually cares about. Do they care about people and do they care about investing in life or do they actually care about power? And if you look at something and you look at kind of stuff like the Pentagon budget, like you can see we're not really investing in life, we're investing in war, right? We're investing in the want and the need for power in any way we can get it. And I think um, as, you know, and I think both play such a key role in kind of breaking narratives that are really embedded in US consciousness that I think so many people, even like people who may not realize that probably hold some of these narratives. And so um, I think uh, 
they're just so interconnected in the work that they do. Yeah, and I think um, bringing up that point of, you know, um, kind of denaturalizing some of the things that we were brought up with or um, made to think were just a feature, I think, of, of society. Um, I think I agree, right? As I mentioned earlier, like I had similar experiences um, coming up in political spaces or organizations where um, some things were not really allowed to be discussed or questioned. Like um, in my own experience, I um, worked um, in, in other feminist uh, organizations and spaces and the question of foreign policy, like you said, was often siloed. And, and when it did come up, um, the, the sort of really tired trope that like, well, it's complicated. And in a lot of cases, we need to essentially free people um, in, in, around the world, or um, we need to ensure that, you know, women are freed around the world, right? And obviously, we know that that's never the case when the United States is involved. Um, and so I think, you know, being able to do that at Code Pink and also um, in our work with the Poor People's Campaign, um, couldn't agree more. I think that's excellent. Um, so, you know, and, and kind of speaking more about that and, and let's talk a little bit about the Divest from the War Machine campaign. Um, you know, I mentioned at the top and um, we talk about it all the time, but it's a campaign that works to divest our cities, schools and politicians from the war machine. And we also talk about defunding the Pentagon at the national level. Um, but so what are some of the things you're most excited about working on as an organizer on the Divest from War Machine campaign? Well, I think, first of all, I think just working for Code Pink is really exciting. You know, when I was um, in late high school and was really, for the first time in my life, starting to question, um, you know, a lot of stuff that I was brought up with and a lot of like, um, like values and kind of teachings about the United States that I was brought up with, I felt pretty isolated for a while because while like some of my friends agreed and stuff like that, it's not like any of us were super well versed or anything like that. And so Code Pink was really one of the first organizations that I kind of found and looked into that was really kind of like answering these questions that I had. And I was like, oh, there are people who will like also think this, like I'm not alone. And so I think it's been really important. Like I'll, I always say that like kind of um, Code Pink and I think um, Reverend Dr. King, um, especially a Time to Break Silence, his speech um, were really kind of formative in my views kind of of uh, you know foreign policy and anti-imperialism, and um, but you know kind of outside of just how excited I am to work at Coping, um, I think I'm really excited for you know kind of the leadership development and meeting kind of organizers across the country, and I think also one part that I've really connected to is also kind of this aspect of public and political education that the divest from the war machine campaign does. Uh, when I started working here like a week ago, I, we, I, we, I told you on our call last week that I was like, I knew like this stuff, but I didn't know the extent of it. And I think that is oftentimes the case. People might have like a very basic understanding, but they might not um, know the extent of which like their school, their city, their like, you know, or anything is invested or um, in war and is invested in like uh, kind of, you know, uh, the war machine. And so I think that's something that I'm really excited about and moving kind of all types of people, people who may not know anything about, you know, like a foreign policy or the war machine and um, people who just need uh, to be moved a little bit more. I'm really excited um, for both of that and obviously to work with you and Cody as well. I'm really looking forward to it. 
Awesome. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. Right. I think you're you're so right. I think some people have a sense. Um, a lot of people don't have any sense. Right. About the ways in which their own communities or their own institutions are are literally invested um, in um, companies that that profit from going to war. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to, to educate people about that, like you said. But I think the strength of this campaign is they're not only educated it's also like, okay, now we can do something about it, right? And I think that process is very powerful. Um, and I think you're right, um, making sure that we're talking with um, a whole range of, of people who are already leaders or you know, moving people to become leaders in their own communities um, is also really important work uh, that I'm really excited to, to, to continue with you, uh, Moses. So um, with that, you know, I wanna thank you for, for joining the program and, are there any last thoughts that you want to leave us with? Any any um, last words? No, I'm just really happy to be able to talk to you. And thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Moses. I, I appreciate you being here. We're now going to take a short musical break with a feminist classic uh, from the early 1970s, which is titled I Am Woman by Helen Reddy. I've heard it all before And I've been down there on the floor No one's ever gonna keep me down again Well, yes, I'm wise But it's wisdom for the pain Yes, I paid the price But look how much I gained If I have to, I can do anything I am strong It only serves to make me more determined to achieve my final goal And I come back even stronger, not a novice any longer Cause you deepen the conviction in my soul That was I Am Woman by Helen Reddy, again, a feminist classic from the 1970s. Um, this is Carly with Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. Uh, today I'm joined by three activists from Rhode Island to discuss a recent divestment campaign they're organizing in their state. So I want to say welcome to uh, Jonathan, Peter, and Linda, who are going to introduce themselves um, in just a moment. So let's get started. Uh, Jonathan, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone here? Yes, uh, uh, Jonathan Daly Lavelle. Um, the effort I'm involved with is uh, no endless war or excessive militarism. Um, I live in the southern part of the state, and I started getting involved in this type of an effort uh, about four years ago when we really kind of realized or came to uh, my realization 
the Democrats in Rhode Island were voting for larger military budgets and not opposing military actions. Excellent. Thank you, Jonathan. Really excited to have you here today. Um, Peter, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Peter Nightingale, and I teach physics at the University of Rhode Island. I'm a theoretical physicist. And um, let's say I'm not a religious person, but I, I still have original sin in my blood <laughs> because we help develop the uh, nuclear weapons that form a real threat to life on Earth. Um, I'll make this story, story short and say I've been working with the Poor People's Campaign a lot recently. And we can come back why that is relevant to what we're discussing. That's a long story. So uh, let me leave it at that. No, that's excellent, Peter. And, and we'll definitely talk more about that. We work with the Poor People's Campaign as well. So thank you. Um, Linda, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, uh, Linda Stevens. I live in the southern part of the state. And uh, I'm affiliated with NUOM, which is Jonathan's organization. And I got involved in peace activism, I would say maybe three or four years ago, uh, through a couple of friends, and was pretty horrified at the amount of militarism that is happening and that we're paying for. And as uh, someone who was trained and has worked as a biologist, I'm particularly interested in the environmental impacts and uh, the fact that the US military is responsible for a lot of environmental devastation. Right, and that's that's also really important and maybe something we can talk about more, um, Linda and Peter, since you're on, on the call today. Um, so thanks everyone. And, you know, uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, Jonathan, Peter and Linda are all working on um, a state level divestment campaign in Rhode Island. Um, so that's kind of where I wanted to start us off. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about what that effort looks like right now. Um, so a few weeks ago, there was a hearing in the Finance Committee in the Rhode Island State House to discuss House Bill 6026. Um, so any one of you, would you start off, what, can you tell people who are listening, what is House Bill 6026? Go ahead, Peter. Um, well, I'm waiting for you. Right, okay. <laughs> I, um, all right, yeah, so I mean, 6026 is a divestment bill. It relates to the state's pension funds and just looking to get uh, the state's investments uh, away from the military corporations, the uh, military weapon manufacturers uh, is the uh, phrasing used in the uh, bill language itself, and uh, you know toward the environmental, social, governmental um, funds, uh, which would have uh, you know reprioritize where our investments are. Excellent. Excellent. And that's, I mean, this is really exciting, right? This is historic um, that this bill was introduced and heard by the Finance Committee. Um, Peter, did you want to add anything about the bill? Um, well, yes, you know, one of the things that, that makes this particularly relevant in Rhode Island is that about 8% of the state economy is war economy of some form or another. And that that plays a role actually in something that will be heard tomorrow. We're not there yet, but uh, which is a resolution addressing um, the congressional delegation. Hey guys, why don't you reprioritize your spending and put the money into uh, into fighting climate change and into supporting 
vulnerable communities, which mostly are, are, are people of color and they're, they're poor. So all these things hang together and, and the reasons for doing that, those things are the same. And as to the divestment, one thing that I, I would like to add is, uh, I think all of us probably are very impressed by the fact that somehow Larry Wilkerson, who is um, Colin Powell's former chief of staff, you know, the, the uh, secretary of, what was he, um, state, I think, Colin Powell, he sent in a, a very short, very powerful, I think, uh, statement to to express why <laughs> why this needs to be done. I, I'm inclined to read the whole thing, but I won't. Uh, maybe one sentence or so later, because I think he's really the connection between what's happening at the state level and what's happening at the federal level. At least that's how I view it. Wow, yeah, I didn't know that. That That is really exciting and, and I think really important. I mean, you know, this bill, like you said, right, would divest the state pension fund from the war machine. And so, as I said, you know, this is, this is historic, this is really exciting. So, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit more about who has supported the bill. I mean, you mentioned Larry Wilkerson, which is amazing, but who are some of the co-sponsors of the bill um, in the state house and how did that come about? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, there's been a few of us. So a little bit of a background, which maybe I, I should have started with, is there's probably um, seven, you know, relatively small uh, anti-war peace organizations in Rhode Island. And the three of us here are all from the southern part of the state. But really, there's people that are very well represented from, you know, the east, north, west. I mean, the center of the state. Um, and so we, you know, we do work kind of independently from each other, but we do collaborate. And so there's been, you know, a fair amount of talk, um, you know, with the congressional delegation, Democrats all in Rhode Island, but being large, you know, one of our um, uh, affiliates, you know, one of our representatives is a bit better than the other three, but three are very much, uh, you know, they're right there with the military industrial complex. And so, you know, that was one phase. And then we realized, you know, well, what, what's happening in the legislature? Are they doing anything to, you know, help these types of issues along? Um, and really up until, um, really until this effort, there was nothing that you could really grasp at to say, well, here's something definitive that's happening. Um, so it is historic. Um, I, I don't know if this is the first time something like this has been uh, submitted, but for all the, uh, we have one activist, who has been involved in these types of efforts for 20 years here in Rhode Island very actively and nothing like this has, has come forward. Um, so, it, you know, it is a big moment. And a lot of what it is coming from is we have had a bit of a progressive wave at the state house with our two last two elections. And so I think that it's making the ground a bit more fertile. Right. That, I mean, that sounds really important. I mean, we found that around the country, right? I think there's been, um, at the local level as well, um, a progressive wave, which makes these sort of um, resolutions more possible. Um, but Linda or Peter, did you want to mention anything else about, um, you know, who supported this bill, both, um, you know, any of the co-sponsors or, you know, which organizations and who rallied in support of the bill? Because I think this is really important how broad based it is. Well, we have had some, oh, sorry, go ahead, Peter. No, 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 we haven't heard your voice yet, Linda. Oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, um, well, uh, Jonathan and Peter were very, very integral in the crafting of this bill, so I'm, I'm not going to get into too many details and specifics because they know more than I do, but it, as a general comment, 
uh, we have had some uh, pretty broad support uh, among the peace organizations and uh, people affiliated with the peace organizations. And uh, I thought that the uh, one of the sponsors of the bill made a very good um, presentation the other night when we many of us testified um, by phone. I think there were 26 call-ins the other night to testify by phone. And there were also uh, a number of written testimonies provided as well. And um, that, that to me was very heartening to see that there was that much support coming in for this bill, as well as hopefully the accompanying bill, which will be uh, coming up tomorrow. Excellent, thank you, Linda. Uh, Peter, did you wanna add, add anything? Yeah, I think we should give a shout out to the people who have been supporting this. Um, and I, well, that, that has been in the house, it was Representative Morales and Henry's. And I think that, I mean, if you speak against the military in one form or another in the United States, you will have a hard time with your political career. So I, I don't underestimate the courage of these people. And so there was Morales and Henry's. And then in the Senate, there actually were quite a few people who supported it. The, the sponsor was Tiara Mack. And then there's Samuel Bell, Janine Kalkin, uh, Kendra Anderson, John Acosta, and uh, Cynthia Mendes. I mean, <laughs> that's almost half the Senate. Well, that's an exaggeration, <laughs> but the Senate isn't all that big. So <laughs> I think we, sh we should really mention their names and, 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 and recognize their courage. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Oh, sorry, yeah. Jonathan, go ahead. No, yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, to, um, you know, maybe there is a shift happening um, but it wouldn't be happening without them being willing to put themselves out there. And, uh, you know, maybe they're at the forefront of something, you know, that could happen across the country, could happen in Rhode Island. And um, so hopefully they will get rewarded. We're going to do what we can to really be with them, um, be at the Vanguard with them and, and really help their efforts so to make sure that they um, get rewarded. Right. I mean, I think that's that's really important right that we <clears throat> celebrate the elected representatives who are already or are leading um, in this effort um, and that kind of leads me to another you know question that I had which is you know uh, you know we've talked about it a little bit about how historic and important this bill is but you know why do you think working to pass a bill to divest the Rhode Island State Pension Fund is so important and and how can we make sure that um, in so doing we're kind of helping to expand the anti-war movement um, I think uh, I'd like to just comment on that quickly a lot of people yeah. now are getting really involved in socially conscious investing and eco, you know, eco investing, and uh, you know, animal rights friendly investing, etc. And I think people are becoming more conscious of where their money's going. At least some people are. And uh, I think it's important for us to offer the the state workers an opportunity to get out of this um, this path, to get off of this path if it's not something that they want to support. Uh, and in in the state workers' case, I don't know how much flexibility they really have. It doesn't sound like they have a lot. So I think it's especially important that, that they give, you know, be given an option that they can um, basically divest themselves from the war machine. Yeah, other, other folks? 
Yeah, uh, well, you know, as, as I mentioned, I'm a theoretical physicist, so I think in terms of abstractions, <laughs> but, but let, let me try to make those a little bit more concrete. Um, I, you asked who, who were the, um, the organizations that supported this. I testified on behalf of the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which calls itself, rightly so, I think, a, a national call for moral revival. As far as I'm concerned, this is about ethics ethics that's shared by every single persuasion I'm aware of, religious, non-religious, you name it. Um, you should take care of the poor and you should take, should not have all your money spent on war. So that to me is, is an important part of this whole battle. And, and so in that sense, I, I see the divestment and the resolution as one part of the same campaign. And, and in, in Rhode Island, of course, the Poor People's Campaign is a collection of individuals. There are congregations, there are community organizations. Um, it's, it's a whole collective of people who support this. Excellent. Yeah, it, it definitely is, the, you know, it's the, it really is a moral argument and uh, just trying to shift, you know, what are our, what are, can, can this country live up to the values that it states? Um, and, you know, we're all waiting. <laughs> Um, and, you know, we can see evolution and, and progress at times, of course, but, um, you know, the reality is when we see like the situation in Yemen that has been going on for five, six years, and, you know, then there was some recognition of, well, he, here are American made bombs, you know, killing families, children, like the, you know, most, most notorious was a school bus full of children. I mean, going on a field trip. And so a lot of this is just trying to continue to raise the awareness, shift our priorities. I mean, I, you know, can, do people really want to make an investment on those types of materials? Right. I mean, I think all of those points are so important, right? I mean, I think, Peter, you brought up the Poor People's Campaign. And of course, um, one critical part of the Poor People's Campaign moral budget is to divest $350 billion from the Pentagon budget. Um, and reinvest in local communities. And I think that's a really extremely important um, connection. And Jonathan, um, also to show people and really educate people about the fact that actually investing in these weapons companies that you're drawing attention to um, makes um, us, you know, morally complicit. And um, Linda, I wanted to pick up too on, on a couple of points that you raised, because I think this is a really important component of divestment campaigns. So you talked a lot about workers having an option um, about what they actually invest in with their pension funds. Um, and I think this is a, a common argument um, against divestment, right? So what, what would you say to people who are worried about the impacts of a divestment campaign on a state pension fund? And how can we bring um, workers into this movement? Anyone? Uh, well, uh, as far as their concerns, I mean, any any investment in any industry has its risks, as we know, given the marketplace. Um, but as far as, you know, divesting, I think it gives people more choices. And I think it gives people more ethical choices, particularly people who are uh, environmentally minded. Uh, when you consider that 53% of federal discretionary spending goes to defense and only 4% goes to energy and the environment, that's really, really unbalanced in my view. And, uh, and considering on top of that, that the military has a very large carbon footprint and is one of the largest polluters and consumers of fossil fuels in the world. 
I mean, if the U.S. military were a nation state, it would be 47th out of 195 countries in its greenhouse gas emissions, which is really, really significant. And uh, that doesn't even get into, you know, damage to the oceans and whatnot. So um, I think people need those choices. And as far as getting other people involved, I think it's just a matter of, you know, reaching out and make, you know, making people aware. I mean, before I started doing this, I was not even that aware of the enormous footprint of the military in terms of the environment. I wasn't aware of how much the incredible amount of spending goes to it and not to other things. And I think a lot of it is, uh, to borrow a phrase that I like that from Jonathan, uh, it comes down to awareness building and yes. just getting the word out there. I mean, I, I think that's an excellent answer. And I think, you know, when people ask that question, I think, you know, turning it back around and saying, basically, how can we really afford to, to continue investing in companies like this, like you mentioned, right, that are causing both ecological devastation, but also um, around the world, uh, causing devastation to people um, as well. So I think that's really important. Uh, Jonathan and Peter, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Um, yeah, you know, one of my, my friends was, she's a, a, a believing Catholic and very active in this kind of stuff is on every corner every day of the week almost fighting for these matters and the issue came up about um seth magaziner who is the state treasurer who was sort of saying well uh, i'm responsible for the money this may not be a literal quote but i have other concerns than the ones you're raising and she was saying that's not the point. This is morally indefensible, period. End of story. Now, activists will buy that. People who, who put their last penny in a fund will think about that differently. I think we have to stress both, both of these points because it is a combination and reality is complicated. And there is morality on the one side and there is a practical consideration. Am I going to make, make money? But I, again, I don't think there is a single person of any respectable religion who would say well you know you can make money on murder why not <laughs> but she got really upset about the argument in particular with with magaziner and i sympathize with her completely yeah and i think that that's you know that's where i end up uh i mean that's actually what i agree with what peter's talking about 100 percent um and that's real you know what i talk about the awareness building is you know because really we're not going to turn Congress and our country around, boom, just because, oh, well, this is our moral argument. You know, we got to build up the awareness. We got to build up that political pressure. Uh, so then, you know, they want to reprioritize because people want them to reprioritize. Um, so I think that's, that's a key piece. Right. Yeah, can, can I add something to that? Please. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we, we, we talk about uh, the wars that are going on and the deaths and, and the kids that are being killed and every single one of them is one too many. What we don't talk about is that in this country, every year, 250,000 people die prematurely because of poverty. It's a silent pandemic that goes on and on and on and on and nobody talks about it. And why is that happening? Well, we know why, because we spend our money on things that don't help people, don't put a, create an economy in which they could be functional. Um, there are 140 million people who are either poor or low income 
who are one minor disaster away, say $400 disaster away from, from poverty. We don't talk about it. And, and I don't think that we will solve this problem until we understand more than be, can be captured in, in pictures. And you know, I'm, I'm a theorist, as I said. So I'm also a geek. So I spend my, my, my days occasionally saying, okay, 250,000 dead people. What is that? Can you imagine that? And, and at some point I literally sat down and I calculated that you could take dead bodies, put them shoulder to shoulder. You probably know a little bit of the geography of Rhode Island. You start in, in Providence, you go all the way to westerly and back and you can refresh those dead bodies every year. Let that sink in. That's something we don't talk about. And why not? Well, because how do you take a picture of something like that and show it on the front page? And that's something that, well, you know, I, I'm a geek and I'm a theorist, but that, that keeps me awake and busy at times, literally. Yeah, I, mean, I think a piece of the challenge, you know, with that, you know, is it's, it is so impactful when you, and, and then, and so a lot of times people don't want to necessarily focus on it, um, but it is important for us to bring, bring forward um, and just, you know, try and have some of those moments of moral clarity. Um, the thing I actually wanted to say before, which I, I neglected to, is, you know, that Morningstar has put together a report, I think it came out last year, with the ESG funds that really are showing that the returns there are as strong as with the, um, you know, the traditional uh, investing. So I don't have a problem with bureaucrats, you know, looking at every dollar. Um, I understand that. Um, but there should be the moral piece, but then the reality is that there may be other options. And so I think where our campaign is going to work towards is really getting into the nitty gritties with the, the treasurer. Okay, well, where is the data? Don't, don't just come at us with a platitude. Where's the data? And now let's have that conversation. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more with the idea that, of course, I think, um, as Linda, you've pointed out, right, it, it is also about awareness building, but to be able to provide and show that these these uh, socially responsible um, investment funds are also performing well is an equally important part of this campaign. And um, Jonathan, you mentioned a report that came out um, last year, and we have also some information about that. I'll post that in the show notes for people to read because I agree it's an, it's an incredibly important resource um, for these sort of campaigns. Um, so we're, we're coming to the end here and I wanted to make sure that we had some time for talking about next steps for the campaign and also how people listening can stay connected um, with, with this campaign and get involved. Yeah, well, so uh, yesterday we actually had um, kind of the next step, uh, which is on this uh, separate piece of legislation which has, um, we actually have an additional house sponsor because the lead sponsor for that is Representative uh, Brandon Potter and uh, also with uh, Morales and Henry's. And then the Senate sponsors, actually, I'm not sure if we know, Peter might know. Um, I think we have the same Senate sponsors for that piece. And that's the, uh, we may not know that yet. So, yeah, but the legislature, okay. So the legislature, we're looking for the legislature to make an official call, an urging to the congressional delegation to uh, start to reprioritize, reduce military spending, and put it towards climate resiliency efforts. Right. 
I mean, that's that's really important for people to know, though, right? That um, you know, it looks like the next steps will be making sure that these bills actually come up for a vote um, in in the state legislature. So, um, moving forward, right? Um, did you all want to give us a, a chance to stay connected with the campaign? Are there any social media platforms or ways people can follow you online? Yeah, I mean, so so people can find, I mean, there's like, like I said, there's seven a quite active peace groups. So they can find them either through various listservs or, you know, their own personal connections. Uh, most are active on Facebook. Uh, some are active on Twitter. So they really should just, you know, if they look up Rhode Island peace groups, one or, or another will come up and any of them can really connect them into this type of an effort. Um, and, and, but on Twitter, we are, uh, it's just peace. RI on Twitter is kind of this um, formal effort that we're working on and people can look for that. Excellent. Perfect. And as I said, we'll also make sure to post those links in the show notes as well. Um, so everyone listening today can easily access that. Um, so with that, you know, I, I want to say thank you, um, Jonathan, Peter, and Linda. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciate um, you talking with us today. And I know people are going to be excited about this effort. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you, Carly. And thank, and thank you, Code Pink. Thanks, everyone. Yes, thank you very much. This is Carly with Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. I want to thank Moses, Jonathan, Linda, and Peter for joining us for some great conversations today. And if you've listened to this episode and agree that we need to take on the U.S. war machine and you want to get more involved in our Divest from the War Machine campaign, you can always contact us at divest at codepink.org to learn more about our municipal, university, and congressional campaigns to take on weapons manufacturers in our own communities. Or if you're interested in learning more about our resources, current campaigns, and more ways you can get involved, you can always check out codepink.org divest. Our Divest from the War Machine campaign emphasizes that if we're going to end war, we need to end war for profit. And we need to stop letting our politicians be bought and sold by the very companies that stand to gain by an ever-increasing Pentagon budget. If you agree, the good news is you can do something about it. Go to codepink.org slash divestcongress to contact your representatives today and demand that they stop taking campaign contributions from weapons companies and commit to reducing the Pentagon budget. Again, that's codepink.org slash divestcongress. So that about wraps up our program for today. Again, this is Carly with Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM in New York City, and WPFW, 89.3 Washington, D.C. Until next time, peace. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil, we know they